a quick announcement related to this episode. If you're in or near New York City on December 4th, that's next week while I'm recording this. I'm helping to produce, along with Computer Science Teachers Association of New York City, Cornell Technion, Computer Science for All, and Mouse, a live episode of the show from the Microsoft offices in Manhattan. The episode will be titled Code of Ethics, and it's one of many celebrations happening nationally for Computer Science Education Week. In case the title isn't straightforward enough, the conversation will be about ethics and tech. And I have some rock stars joining, Anil Dash, CEO of Glitch, and hero to many who care about ethical computer science, will be with us. Along with Natasha Singer, widely read reporter on tech and business for the New York Times, is joining. And I hope to bring along a high school senior friend of mine to keep the conversation grounded in what's relevant to young people especially. If you're in New York City and would like to register for the event or learn more, go to meetup.com slash CSTA hyphen NYC. That's CSTA hyphen NYC. Click on the meetups tab and learn more. Which brings me to this episode. I'm cramming for this conversation next week about ethics and tech. And as I prepare, I thought it would be a fun way to add some transparency to this process. Usually when I prepare for a big episode, I reach out to folks in my network. I dig for sources. I spend a lot of time with the topic in my head, maybe too much. When I thought about who I should reach out to as I think about the roots of some of the issues we'll cover next week, I wondered who might help me with something of a lit review on the ethics and philosophy part. As we know, but sometimes forget, many of the questions that we're asking today about ethics relevant to computer science have been asked before. There are entire schools of thought dedicated, scholars who spent lifetimes, but I haven't reached back to those texts in forever. Maybe you haven't either. So I did what anyone would do. Mark? Hi, John. This is John. Got in just a little while He's my ago, high school but, uh, philosophy teacher. Thank you for your call. And the first person who came to mind yeah, when I'm, I considered I'm, who would make time for me project. as a cram for this interview. Yeah, so, so He's I, a busy I, guy, um, an assistant professor at Raritan Valley Community College so here in New Jersey, an acclaimed stage actor and restorer of his cabin in the woods, where I imagine he'll one day sip brandy and read poetry by a wood stove. We caught up for a bit before diving in, but the questions you hear me refer to are ones that I shot him over Facebook chat, where he and I keep an occasional touch. When you're picturing John, if you think of the Peter Weir movie Dead Poet Society from 1989 and Robin Williams' character inciting raucous sessions of meaning-making through inquiry and dialogue, you'd be pretty close. Only, I didn't go to a fancy private school and wear a uniform. This was suburban New Jersey. And so to us, Mr. Cleary's style, his stories about being an underwater welder in Alaska, his elbow-patched cardigan, his wide eyes that you felt were hanging on every uttering of your working mind, it was all exactly what my teenage self, and a lot of kids like me, needed to get them through high school philosophy and English. The philosophy was elective. After I had him for English once, I found my way to his classroom whenever I could thereafter. Anyhow, enjoy my chat with John. It's a prep call for next week's episode on ethics and tech. But if, like me, you're looking for a lit review to help you think about the scholarly history of some of civilization's thorniest questions related to computer science and tech, here it is. This is No Such Thing a podcast about the promise and reality of learning with technology. I'm Mark Lesser. 
So the, the first question that I ask is, is what of the great philosophers or ethicists over time would have the strongest feelings about technology and morals slash ethics? Do you have any thoughts about that? Uh, I would go back to, um, I would go all the way back to Heidegger to start with that. Uh, his, um, his discussion of the, um, the they self is an interesting one because I think it's very close to the modern complaint of the philosopher Neil Postman, uh, whose books on technology, uh, take a look at his book, um, Technopoly, the mm. Surrender Culture to Technology. Uh, but Heidegger's complaint was similar to that insofar as he was complaining about the distractions of the, of the information environment and how the information environment uh, can kind of clutter one's ability to think clearly about complex ideas in philosophy. And I think Postman takes up that complaint as well. And I would also look at uh, the dean of the, of the criticism of, of the information environment, and that would be Walter Lippmann. And you take a look at his books. And the idea is that, um, which you've, I think you've probably heard before, is Aldous Huxley's complaint is, or I should say, I should start with Orwell's complaint, which is not new insight, but I'm just repeating what things you already know, mm. is that as our society becomes increasingly totalitarian, uh, we have to, we're going to be watched, we're going to be surveilled, uh, there's going to be, uh, there already is an emerging body of literature, a curriculum called critical surveillance literature, literacy. But in addition to that, Aldous Huxley's complaint is that we'll be sufficiently narcotized and uh, through the bromides of um, entertainment. So I would look at the, I would look at those philosophers first, uh, Heidegger, Postman, uh, Walter Lippmann, uh, and there are many others in what they call the uh, critical media literacy uh, movement, yeah. including the people like Douglas Kellner, uh, who I think is uh, I think he's still around. Yeah, yes, Douglas Kellner's still around, and he's written some really insightful books, uh, especially about the uh, the Bush election and other things um, related to that. And then, um, uh, but I would also take a look at uh, the, uh, the the writings of people like Joe Kinchelo, K-I-N-C-H-E-L-O-E. And he's got a really interesting book about McDonald's. Mm. And um, the name of the book is The Sign of the Burger. And in it, he traces the hit, not only the history of McDonald's, but how the history of um, advertise, the advertising within uh, the corporation, some of the, the things that the corporation used to advance its products. It's just, it's a really entertaining book. And it's, um, so he's not on the same level as a postman or a, no, excuse me, not on the same level as a Heidegger or a Lippmann, uh, but on pretty much the same scholarly level as a, a postman. I really recommend those uh, philosophers. And I hope that answers your question. Yeah, I think so. So uh, there are so, there are about a hundred things I want to come back to. Uh, I don't know. I don't know how much time you have, but but um, let me make sure I have the names right. So Postman and Heidegger, I got. Um, Heidegger was talking about clutter. Um, to, if you take a look at his discussion of what he calls the they self, you'll see what I mean. Um, uh, he has. Uh, it, it's more. It's more or less a criticism of how uh, gossip and idle chatter within the, uh, that, is, that is advanced 
through uh, new technologies is um, takes us away from what he calls authenticity. And uh, it would take me a while to explain what he means by that. Uh, but Postman, for sure, take a look at his books. He's got another really entertaining book, uh, Neil Postman. He was at NYU for years. Yeah. Called uh, Amusing Ourselves to Death. Uh, and in it is a very sharp criticism. It was written a while ago. I mean, it's kind of old, 1984 or something like that. Uh, 1990, I think, maybe is, is the publication date. Yeah. You know, it gets, it, it's so easy to, um, Neil Postman was definitely a big part of my undergraduate uh, experience. And um, isn't it funny how, how quickly, and maybe it's just my brain, uh, you know, you, you forget over time that people have been working on these, these problems for so long. And this is in, in part why I wanted to talk to you as like a, uh, to do a little bit of a, a literature review, um, because I know so much is, is, is out there and even stuff that I've, uh, I've ingested and digested over time, but it's like, uh, you know, we're, we are limited in what we can recall in any given uh, moment. So it's, it always helps to put heads together. Um, I want to definitely read sure. more about um, the they self so is fascinating. I, I hope I answered your question adequately. I could spend a lot more time talking about that. Yeah. Uh, but um, I really recommend looking at the, at also Douglas Kellner's stuff. Yeah. Uh, he's, he, he's one of the major writers in the critical media literacy movement, uh, media studies and critical media literacy. And then, of course, don't forget Noam Chomsky. Yeah. His, um, his famous book, um, what is the name of it? Uh, it's, a, it's a book about uh, democracy. Uh, I forget the name of it. I'll, I can think about it in just a minute. Um, but, uh, uh, yeah, he's got some democracy really interesting work. Oh, it's called, um, it's just come to me now. It's called Thought Control in Democratic Societies. Mm. And how the use of, uh, among other things, uh, advertising is a kind of curriculum. Yeah. Kind of propaganda. Uh, and uh, people are learning their values from what they see in advertisements. Yeah. When was Heidegger writing? Okay, so this is uh, right around the... Um, uh, the uh, just after the Second World War, just after the Second, yeah, right? So he he was he was thinking about TV and radio and uh, and uh, you, you want to take a look at two uh, of the um, of what they call the Frankfurt School, hmm. the Frankfurt School of uh, philosophers. So that includes people like Theodore Adorno and Max Horkheimer, and those guys uh, were very much and uh, people like Hob Jürgen Habermas. H-A-B-E-R-M-A-S, and they were very much concerned about the influence of mass culture on society and the role that technology plays in um, facilitating that, facilitating mass culture. Uh, yeah, the Frankfurt School. They've got a book, uh, Horkheimer um, and Adorno, uh, it's called The Dialectic of the Enlightenment, and mm. uh, it's not an easy read, uh, <laughs> but their argument is, is that the Enlightenment with its emphasis on efficiency, uh, brought us the Nazis. You know, so that's uh, mm. uh, an interesting thesis. Uh, so, uh, but it's 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 not an easy, easy read. Um, mm. But yeah, um, I will I will check both of those out. So I'm I'm 
curious about this question uh, that I posed to you about um, how technology complicates, and we've started to get to this, right? This this idea of Heidegger's that you were just um, talking about, the they self. Uh, but my question was, what about technology complicates the question of who am I, and our uh, our both our our individual and our collective identities? And I wonder. Um, if if you have other besides Heidegger, other other go to thinkers who can help me think through that question. Well, it's a good question, and um, so I would think that um, uh, one philosopher that I mean this is maybe a stretch to think about, but uh, I would go all the way back to uh, the existentialists, mm-hmm. even. Um, people like Jean-Paul Sartre and uh, others like him, and even Nietzsche, you could make the argument that if if we're concerned about self-knowledge, the Socratic directive, the Platonic directive to Mm -hmm. know ourselves, and the self is being formulated through um, a curriculum which is in the information environment, which people learn from, the question is, I think Postman talks about this too. The question is, is when Narcissus looks into the water and he sees himself, what is the, uh, what is the reflection to, uh, giving back to him? And is it actually something that is, um, be one that one can emulate and become? Mm. So um, I think of another writer to help you with that. And the um, first person that I'm thinking of is Donna Haraway. Do you know her? No. Yeah, she's got an interesting book called The Cyborgian Self. And what it's a kind of far-out thesis is that... Uh, and then Angela Thomas's book, very interesting, a book called Youth Online. Uh, and in it, she claims that uh, cell phones for young people, people born after... Uh, 19, what was it 1996? Yeah. Yeah, some people born after 1996. The cell phone is not a phone on the table in which it rings and one answers and then walks to the other room and does something else. The phone has been more or less integrated into the person's body. Yeah, Angela Thomas uh, writes about that. And if that's true, then increasingly we have this phenomenon, which Mikio uh, Kaku talks about, too. He's a futurist. You know his stuff? Yeah. I, we, not intimately, but but uh, yeah. you're, you're and, the second but, or third person but, who's referred me to him recently. Yeah, he's got a bunch of, like, he's got a book called The Physics of the Impossible and all. And then increasingly, this is a notion that, you know, the toilet is going to tell us whether we're sick or the... Uh, um, to be able to download people's memories and all these things, uh, which I don't claim to have any expertise and knowledge of it at all. But I do know that as a futurist, he has written about that. And as Donna Haraway has written about um, her book, Youth Online, it's kind of old. I think it's like 19 or 2001, right mm-hmm. around there. Yeah. So, yeah, the, Tom- uh, the Thomas book, I know. Okay. That's an interesting one. Uh, I love uh, coming back to what you were saying about the existentialists. This is a really, really interesting thread uh, for me is thinking about. Uh, so you said that how this, the when Narcissus looks in the water and sees himself, what does the reflection give back to him? Um, and then you said, uh, you know, is, is that. Uh, by that, because what I mean, I, I'm sorry, I was just 
not making sense there. No, go uh, ahead. What I meant by that is that if technology, as many critics of technology have argued, that it, it, that social media encourages narcissism, mm. and if that's true, um, I don't know. I mean, is that true? Then, uh, like the story of Narcissus, Narcissus falls in love with a reflection that he doesn't recognize. That's part of the story. And if Heidegger is asking us to live an authentic, an authentic life. How is it that technology is allowing us to to construct an identity that's not based in things um, that are um, authentic in the sense that it's not something that we reach independent of machines? The counterargument to that is that now that the machines are here, now that um, these things have been integrated into our life worlds, as Habermas would say, uh, then it changes the whole idea of who we are, like what we are. And Mary Shelley's warning, if you remember Frankenstein, is that if technology outpaces our ability to understand its effect on our lives, then it also outpaces our ability to define who we are. And that's the scary part. Uh, and that's where the monster comes in and indiscriminately, you know, something happens and we don't know why and... Uh, We'll wait a couple of years, and we enter into a war with the Japanese and the Germans, and then you know what happened in 1945. Mm. So, uh, so in a way, the verdict is still out about our curiosity and our ability to, or the notion that uh, with each invention, with each improvement to our lives through labor-saving devices, such as washing machines and dishwashers and so on, is a new technology uh, to uh, make the world a more lethal place. And that, if that's true, then it's the verdict is still out about whether technology will be the cause of our own demise. Uh, and that's the other scary part, too. But I'm not the first person to talk. I mean, Alvin no. Toffler, do you remember him? He wrote a book called The Future Shock. That's, that's yeah. a really old book. Uh, but, um, yeah, he talked about that in that book. And... I don't know whether uh, Kaku talks about it, uh, but um, whereas the um, whereas the technophiles will say, you know, this is all good and this is all going to be integrated and it's going to help us, and and there's many examples of which that's true, especially with the technology. I, re- I mean, I'm not an expert, but of things that are happening with farming and irrigation and uh, new ways of keeping people alive, all of which is good news. But then, um, if you've read, did you read the New York Times, the Weekend Review yesterday? If you look at the um, opposite, the, the excuse me, the editorial page itself, I think it's the largest editorial page I've ever read, and the whole thing is about social media uh, and its effect on, uh, on on especially young people. Mm-hmm. Um, very much about constructing identity in terms of of groupthink. Like if I if I'm if I'm not a happy young white guy and I don't really know where I belong and I don't have a career and I'm kind of lost and angry and marginalized and dispossessed and if I get on the internet and I get to the wrong website and I'm looking for a paradigm everybody's out there looking for a paradigm <laughs> I, and I'm out there and I get the wrong paradigm because it has to do with hate and all these other things then you have uh, Charlottesville and yeah, oh, so forth. Yeah, this was 
this was if if that's of interest for you this is a I did an, an episode with a group called um, Data, Data and Society, which has done a, a number of um, reports and um, it was really, really good. If you want to get a, like a level deeper than I think the Times did and, and really uh, geek out on that particular subject, although I, I will warn that I think it was uh, it might be a 70 page report or an 80 page report and um Man, it is scary and depressing at, at times. Do you have a link for that that I can read? Or? I'll, I'll send it to you. Okay. Um, but but it's interesting because this story that you were you were pointing to, and and I want to ask a question about this too. So so you were pointing to the that story of narcissists, and um, and I want to ask because I don't think I totally understand that the um the connection well between uh narcissus and the existentialist or at least the the sort of point in that connection that you were making so i wanted to ask you to just to elaborate on that but but the other piece that's really really interesting to me is that when you think about that uh are looking into um looking into that water um, how things like social media change what we see, um, and then uh, not just change what we see, but then when you when you intersect that with uh, with who's looking um, and what what tech companies are serving up to you know when you when you intersect those things right the the demographic with the technology or the device um it becomes really really interesting and and uh so anyway i'm sort of rambling but i'm i'm making sense of of your point so so um connect that to the existentialist for me well the uh, one of the central uh struggles for the existentialist is ourself in the world and finding meaning in the world yeah and, and Nietzsche um, says it well. He says, uh, when, when, when looking into the abyss, the abyss looks into you. And I think what he means by that is an excellent metaphor. For once that you've accepted the charter of, of um, meaninglessness, which is pervasive and nonsense, it gives you, once you accept that fact, it gives you the charter, excuse me, to create yourself. And this is what Paul Tillich means when he talks about the courage to be. And this is what Jean-Paul Sartre means when he talks about good faith versus bad faith. Being yourself is what he means. And that, um, and the reason why I'm connecting that to Narcissus is that a Narcissus is also looking for a paradigm to know who he is. And he sees the reflection in which he falls in love with, uh, which he doesn't recognize anyway, but he, he, he falls in love with it anyway. That is a... Um, Oh, I'm connecting that as a way of saying that it could be that one road to finding who you are and defining who you are is through this this narcissistic reflection. Mm. Facebook-like, this Instagram-like, and so on. And if it's about ego and appearance and the acceptance of others, I'm saying, is that sufficient in an existential way for understanding who we are in the world, and it may not be. It may be keeping us in a sort of juvenile, um, 
understanding of, of the complexity of ourselves in the world and our responsibility to be um, perhaps, um, I don't know, not so narcissistic. I guess that answers your question. And then the second part of what your question was, I'm sorry, I don't remember. The, uh... Yeah, no, that, that, was, that was it. Um, I wonder how the, uh, I'm thinking about the existentialist and I'm, I'm, uh, I'm wondering if I could convince the existentialists that, um, that there are opportunities here to do it right. Right. If um, I wonder whether Nietzsche would, would, um, just sort of categorically, uh, put put it down or at least the state the state of technology as it exists or how we use technology as it exists if he would categorically um call it a failure as it as it uh as it impacts or or allows us to create a meaningful paradigm um or could i convince him to uh to embrace it and what would that look like if we were to convince them that there there were um, there were aspects of these technologies that actually um, could be ad- advances for humans in how how they can find better paradigms for themselves? Yeah. Well, one of the um, uh, that's a good way to put it. One of the um, the tenets of critical media literacy is that unlike media studies, the claims that all of this stuff is um, somehow or another um, inf- colonizing the life worlds of young people in a way that's negative, the critical media literacy scholars, they say, okay, yeah, we, we see what's going on there, uh, but we can talk back to it. Yes. And I think that's where the direction you're heading, that through our own technologies, we can respond to technology and that we're not uh, helpless, passive um, victims or um, we're not uh, melodramatic. We're not part of a melodramatic story in which we're the protagonist in it. That we don't understand what's happening to our lives. We can we can talk back to power. We can speak truth about it and so on. And so the 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 models of understanding and epistemologies that are served up for us, uh, we can be we can actually um, uh, be more. We actually can allow ourselves to be more aware of. And, uh, and, and through technology, understand the nonsense from truth. And this is what the people at the, uh, I don't know whether you know these people, uh, the National Association of Media Literacy Educators. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, yeah. They, they, they do some great work. And uh, some of what I just said is what is some of the scholarship that's coming out of their camp. Yeah, that's a great, uh, that's a great resource and i'm gonna i'm gonna link to it uh for people uh who listen to the episode so that um they can they can uh go find some of this stuff um i could i'm gonna move on to another question uh but but i i could linger on any one of these questions with you for a very long time (laughs) um so, uh, if there were two or three philosophers that you would have every computer science student, um, or, or let's say technology entrepreneur look at closely before they go out into the world, who would they be? Uh, yeah, I remember that question. That was a fun question. And I answered it in my head in many different ways. 
And um, one way to answer that question is to try to find out who's asking it. Because, and I don't mean to be a smart aleck by, by saying that, but what I mean by that is what sort of dispositions and values and worldviews does that person have? Mm. Do they possess? And if they're going into computer science, how will that um, match up to those philosophers that may want to um, interrogate and um, question uh, their worldview? Mm. And um, so, uh, since I don't know that information about uh, who the computer science person is, that's so I would have to respond more generally. And I, and I would I would respond by by sticking one with the classic uh, metaphor, which has all sorts of uh, very very interesting uh, implications and directions in which you go, and that's Plato's uh, cave. The metaphor, the allegory of the cave, mm-hmm. uh, is just it's a story about it's a story about the limits of knowledge and the nature of our own ignorance. I'm not saying that computer science people that's not what I mean by ignorant that they're ignorant that's not what I mean by that, but that all of us are in a sense like prisoners in a cave staring at the wall with the images up, and that um, uh, the journey to self knowledge and understanding is one in which is arduous. And that it isn't uh, one in which is going to be uh, easily easily served up to us in a way that we're not going to be required to do any work. No, the the whole idea of the the rough ascent to the surface that once the prisoner escapes does the, uh, engages in this that symbolizes our education, mm. but it also symbolizes our ability to continue to ask questions, and that to live in a world in which we continue to ask questions is perfectly okay. Doesn't mean we're spineless, that we don't have a moral code system, that we don't have values, or that we don't believe in um, the, the pursuit of, of uh, deeper questions in axiology, the study of, of values. But it does mean that we use we can we can um, use those kinds of metaphors and a- allegories as ways of understanding complexity. Complexity in its moral, its its moral implications, its epistemological implications, its political implications in the, in the political arena, and so on. Uh, the uh, second philosopher I would take a look at because he talks a lot. He writes a lot of about uh, the regimentation of our minds through institutions. And this is not just for computer science people, this is just for anybody. I'd really take a look at Discipline and Punish by Michel Foucault. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's really worth a read uh, for its uh, prophetic implications about the organization of a society and its influence on the way we think. And then, um, uh, well, I was going to mention Mikio Kaku, but he's more of sort of a popular philosopher, popular physicist. And then I would, and then I would look at uh, people like Kierkegaard, mm. and um, his discussion of passionate inwardness. And what I'm not suggesting by looking at Kierkegaard is that people become Christians. That's not what I mean, or that they become uh, that they should become seminarians, or, or that, that's, that's not what I mean. But his discussion of uh, the the sense in which we can be uh, more attuned to uh, our commitment to things beyond the ordinary and the immediate, if you want to call that God. Uh, and that, um, like all, um, uh, I was going to mention John Dewey again, too. He's an interesting guy. 
his discussion of art, and that uh, in our pursuits of um, defining ourselves in the world, you know, he calls that the the leap of faith. And I don't think it always has to be read in terms of the, the Christian paradigm. It can be read in terms of those sense of optimism and commitment to uh, purpose in life that um, can take us away from the habitual. You know, Heiger actually talks about that too. Uh, the uh, that we're not just doing going through the motions. That creativity does have something to do with analytic thinking, after all, and vice versa. And that they're not necessarily. Uh, uh, antithetical to each other, that engineers can think like artists and artists can think like engineers. The creativity of the of the engineer and the the analytic thinking of the artist, and that by thinking in this way, we don't limit ourselves to ways of thinking uh, that are that are categorical and uh, and and compartmentalized. Yeah. So those are the three philosophers. I mean, there are many others that come to mind to answer your question. Which was the text that you thought was most re- relevant of Foucault's, or was it just, just the idea? The Discipline and Punish. Yeah, take a look at that. It's about the regiment. He, he comments a lot about the regimentation of society. Yeah. Is that the one I, I remember reading a lot um, at, at one point in my uh, education um, about his idea around ideas around the panopticon Mm-hmm. And yeah. um, yes. he does a lot of thinking about prisons and and uh, the structure of prisons. Um, yes, that's mm-hmm. that's from Discipline and Punish. Yeah, yeah. And the reason why I recommend that is that as our society becomes increasingly uh, controlled by uh, AI or the, the, the thought that Hal is going to kill the astronauts, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, is that. Um, this will also mean, according to Foucault, that um, the structure of how we live will also be uh, guided by, uh, and maybe this is not something to worry about, but maybe it is, depending upon who you're reading, is uh, continually, uh, continuously be guided by uh, not considerations of humanity, but considerations of efficiency and technology. Mm. But I, want to, but I want to argue that perhaps technology does not have to be seen as um, uh, Stanley Kubrick's HAL or uh, the Terminator, but rather as something that will allow us to live more beneficially without, it, without having to do the things that we ordinarily would do um, because we're laboring away at completing a task, you know, whatever that task might be. So, um, whether that's possible, I don't know. Yeah, I love those. Those are are terrific, and I think uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna dig into each of them. But uh, Plato's Cave for sure. Yeah, that's just a lot of fun. I mean, this if if you actually, I I really recommend rereading it mm-hmm. and and then read some of the criticism about it. It's just there's some it's just so much fun talking about that. Yeah. Well, and this relates to my next question because. Um, I th- I think that that the points that you make about having to work and the idea that the ability to ask questions is okay and it doesn't make us um it doesn't make us spineless it doesn't um you know indicate that we are um not 
uh, making progress or on the right path or doing what's right, that in fact, the asking of the questions is what's right. Um, I think is really interesting, but, but this one relates to my next question, which I think that, um, like in anything, I think folks tend to, um, look for kind of fast and easy rules of thumb, uh, to help us guide the way. And, and your point about, um, the allegory of the cave is a, is a really interesting one because I think that, uh, this is my, my next question is that, you know, the golden rule is, is something that, that comes up, um, from time to time when, when, uh, it, it feels often like, uh, business leadership and folks who are talking about moving forward, um, through technology, want to sort of fall back to uh things like the golden rule as as being enough to sort of guide us and um my question for you was is it enough and and i kind of feel like i i even in asking i i (laughs) felt like i knew i knew your answer um you know in in simple terms but um but is is the allegory of the cave uh, the direction you would go in answering that question of, of is the golden rule enough? Are there going to be hard and fast rules or rules of thumb that will easily guide us? Or do you think that this is, is much harder work uh, for whoever's doing it? I like to go with what William James wrote about when he talks about his pragmatic theory of truth. And uh, he applies it to morality as well. And this is lines up with the, the British utilitarians, I think. And the idea that um, if you want to know that something is right to do, look at the consequences of the behavior, and there's your answer. And uh, I, I think that that works, and that's what the utilitarians were talking about. And um, and, and in this and in this relationship to uh, finding out how to how to behave well, the Kant's uh, categorical imperative is more or less a reformulation of the golden rule. The problem with that is that are there circumstances in which actually he says act on that principle and that principle alone that should be universally applied. That's more or less the way he describes it. But are there circumstances in which as part of being a prisoner in a cave or what have you or trying to escape and see the the sun, the symbol of truth, in which we will have to be uh, and not tell the truth entirely or not respond in such a way that's entirely truthful in order to uh, diffuse a, a social situation in which people would explode if they actually heard the truth. Yeah, there, there are many circumstances in which it's better to not do what Kant asks us to do and not follow a, a golden rule that, uh, because of the, the nature of the situation that we're in. Hmm. Uh, and the argument from ethical relativism. So it's it's um, ironically not binary is is kind of the <laughs> the yeah, idea. Is, that's a good way to put it. I would say that, that not being um, knowledgeable enough about computer science, I, I am not knowledgeable enough. But knowing what I do know about it, uh, it seemed to me that the uh, there's no cause to be uh, monocular in one's thinking. In fact, the opposite is 
only going to help them to be polyocular in their thinking, to think as an syncretic, eclectic thinker, bringing things together, but also have many things that you think about. And that's really the truly educated person, in my view, the person who, yes, they're an expertise in their field, they know what they're doing, but they haven't shut themselves off to other avenues of interest and knowledge. I think it was Sextus Empiricus, the philosopher, who, who urged us to say, uh, to think in such a way uh, as, uh, in, in, as interdisciplinary thinkers. We, we, uh, and I, and I, by that, he didn't mean being a dilettante. He meant that we're knowledgeable enough and other areas to help us inform us to make the wisest and most insightful decisions about what to do because of um, of what a college education is supposed to provide for us. And that's, and that's what the word universitas means, right? Many things, universal things, lots of things, syncretic, eclectic, eclectic uh, learning and thinking. So you, t- you said Socratic, eclectic. Syn- syncretic. Yes, syncretic. Uh, syncretic. Eclectic. I need to look that up. Syncretic, eclectic. Syncretic means to bring things together, and eclectic means many things. Yeah. Um, I love that. Universitas. Oh, my goodness. Have we strayed from universitas? Um, this is... Uh, this is so 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 helpful, John. I really uh, I can't thank you enough. And and uh, so my my last question before and and I can I can almost guarantee you that I want to come back <laughs> to this conversation because it's been uh, uh, if you'll have it because selfishly it has so enriched uh, my thinking and and as I had um, as I had hoped. Um, this, this has just been, uh, you know, yours, yours has been a a great head, uh, to put together, uh, to get together with as I'm thinking about this conversation next week, because it is, um, you know, this, this topic is bigger than, um, any one of these sort of, uh, canons or, or, uh, it's easy to sort of, uh, think about it along one um, either scholarly line or one um, kind of use case or exemplar that's happening in the digital world right now. Or, or but mm-hmm. um, I think part of the point um, that has been made before us that we're just sort of bringing back up is uh, what what you just said. You know, this idea that um, it's not about being a, a dilettante, but but rather a, a thinking. Uh, getting back to being a thinking individual who, uh, when you're putting things into the world, you've, you've, um, at least have, um, enough perspective, uh, have, have sort of done the work to understand what the consequences of what you're putting, uh, out there are. And, um, so anyway, this has been so helpful, uh, I wonder, my last question was about, uh, when, when I took your classes, which, uh, I did at, at, uh, every chance I got, we took, I took philosophy with you. I also took, um, English a few years with you. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other, the other question that I had for you was whether, um, so I think a lot about specific discussions we did in your class about things like the um huxley's a brave new world um and i i wonder with 
the context that that we're talking about now, whether there are um, others on the book list that uh, you would put out there, whether it's for uh, computer scientists or uh, teachers of computer science who um, might want to be using narratives that have come before us uh, to be thinking about uh, what's ahead of us. Uh, what, what others would be on your list? In terms of novels? Yeah, I guess so. Maybe let's stick with, with fiction. Uh, so look at the, at uh, Zim Yatin's uh, We. Uh, it's, it's not referencing um, anything electronic. It's um, just exactly as it sounds. Uh, we, W-E. And it's a dystopian novel that's the third in that series there. It's not really a series, but when scholars refer to dystopic novels, they refer to 1984, Brave New World, and uh, Zimyatin, who's mm -hmm. a Russian. Uh, so he's worth looking at. And it sounds like an odd, odd reference to make, but I, I just think it's a wonderful satire on the organization of society, particularly in, uh, uh, in England at the time. He was writing Dean Swift, Jonathan Swift's Gulliver's Travels. Really worth reading. It's, it's an excellent story. I mean, a lot of people understand it as a as a kind of folktale uh, cartoon that they may remember that Disney put together, but it's, it's political implications and social implications that are far and wide ranging. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I, I don't and, think I've ever read Gulliver's Travels. Yeah. Take a look at it. It's really funny. Uh, hence the, the search engine Yahoo, you know, that the Yahoo search engine, mm. that's, that's the name of a group of, of creatures that are in the novel. That's where they got it from. I uh, never knew that. Yeah, yeah. Or unless they're mean Yahoo, you know, that's different. But uh, the Yahoos are actually human beings that um, are at the lowest end of the ontological status of the creatures in the novel. And they throw excrement at each other and say terrible things. And, <laughs> and uh, uh, that's, that's Dean Swift's assessment of human beings. The most rational creatures are the Winhams and uh, their uh, horses that are kind of like these stoical uh, uh, creatures. It's really fun to read. I, I really recommend it. And uh, the, 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 the writing is kind of archaic, uh, but you'll see as you go along, though, that it's, it's very, very uh, interesting. Hmm. Are Dean Swift and Jonathan Swift different people? Nope, they're the same person. No, Dean no. Swift is not. Yeah, he was. A, I forget what kind of clerk. Was he a bishop? I forget. I got to look at that again. Ah, uh, so it was a dean. Is a was a title. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was his academic title. Right. And, um, and then I would take a look at uh, a really funny novel uh, that's actually not very well known. It's written by a guy by the name of Carol Capek. C A P. I think it's C A P E K. And it's called War with the Newts. Mm. And the newt is a is a kind of salamander, mm -hmm. but these are six foot tall newts. <laughs> okay, and it's 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 a funny novel. It's a bit. It's also kind of dystopic, and it's about the resources that people put into uh, things like warfare and nationalism and patriotism, that kind mm. of thing. It's very oh, uh, interesting, timely. Yeah. I, mean, I could go on and on. I mean, this is all kinds of. Novels. I mean, there's Hemingway. You got Steinbeck. I mean, there's, there's all kinds of really interesting stuff out there. There's the Beat Poets. They're fun. Yeah. Uh, uh, that's and then uh, 
And then I'm a real fan, although it's just me being an old timer uh, of the um, of the English novel. Like Dickens' Hard Times is really the character of Mr. Gradgrind that's in there. I mean, what a what an indictment of capitalism that is. And then John Ruskin's very famous book that people I don't think anybody reads it anymore. It's called Unto This Last. Um, he has a really interesting book called The Seven Lamps of Architecture. And in it, he describes the, the relationship between the Gothic and the Romanesque and so on. But Unto This Last is his critique of capitalism, too. And he's fun to read because he's really eccentric in his writing. And uh, Yeah. John, I I, uh, I can't thank you enough. This has been an awesome uh, cram session for me. And uh, I'm there are, you know, times times in life where you feel like uh, you followed your gut and it was exactly the right place to look for a thing. Uh, and I feel exactly that way right now. <laughs> like I had a gut feeling that if I asked you, you'd have, you'd have, uh, uh, some places to look. So, uh, of, of course, and in, in typical fashion, places to look, not necessarily answers, uh, uh, that I don't have to work work through on my own. So um, so I appreciate that as always, and uh, and for your time. You bet. You're welcome. For more info about advertising with us, charitable sponsorship, or if you have show ideas you want to share, find me on Twitter at m a lesser. The tracks in this podcast were produced by Leroy Tindy, a guest in episode zero, an Ithaca bomber, an engineer of digital things and fresh beats. Find him on SoundCloud at Air Tindy Beats. No such thing is produced by me, Mark Lesser, a learner like you, and our show notes can be found at nosuchthingpodcast.org. This show would not be possible without the support from the good people at Mouse, a national youth development nonprofit that believes in technology as a force for good. Find us online at mouse.org. 